Hello, friends. Welcome to the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, and artists who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in empathy and compassion. In the last episode, we talked about ways that parents can better support their transgender teens and ways to help them explore their gender and faith. And this week, we're continuing this theme by learning from Layla Yagyela about her transgender journey as a Muslim woman and finding belonging among the third gender communities in Southeast Asia. It's the topic of her brave and insightful new book entitled Among the Eunuchs, A Muslim Transgender Journey, which helps us understand some of the unique struggles faced by Muslim transgender women and how she found affirmation and support in Islam. In the podcast, she talks with us about the beauty and diversity in Islam, ways that she struggled with her gender identity and sexuality as a young Muslim woman, how the third gender communities in Islam helped her find affirmation and recognition. She talks about what life was like as a hijra in Southeast Asia and how she navigated gendered spaces. She talks about trans affirming ideas and scriptures in the Quran and also New Testament. And at the end of the podcast, she talks with us about what Jesus says about eunuchs in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, and the application for transgender and gender nonconforming people. Leila Yagyela is a cultural anthropologist and scholar of religion, working on orthodoxy and heterodoxy in Islam, and gender and sexuality in Muslim societies. As a Muslim trans woman, she has been a community activist for several decades and works as a social worker with LGBTQI refugees in Germany. Here's our conversation. Layla, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. You've written a beautiful book about your journey. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me in the beginning was just your love of anthropology. And obviously, you're now an anthropologist. You're also a religion scholar. And I'm wondering if you share a little bit about where that passion came from and how those two passions have shaped you. Oh, that's really a good question. Um, I think, well, first of all, I, I have a lot of love for anthropology, but I'm also struggling with anthropology because it's also a problematic discipline. It has a colonial imperial history and all of that. And um, and also as, as a queer person and a queer Muslim person, it's sometimes not so easy to be in that field that is by definition still designed to have a very you know, very, you know, always having a gaze uh, on, on the other, basically, you know, on on the subaltern, which is pretty much still the standard. But still, yes, I do love anthropology very much. And um, that started in my childhood already, because I was always very curious about the differences in human cultures, in particular when it comes to the constructions of, of sexuality and gender, and of course, that because I, from from my earliest age on, I felt there was an issue with that. You know, I I had this experience that society had a certain idea of sexuality and gender, and I didn't agree with that. Um, society also had all kinds of very specific ideas about identities, and I think you know, I I grew up in Germany, and I still live in Germany, and and I think German society in particular has very strict ideas regarding identity and uh, yeah that bothered me from childhood on and so I, I always ask that question is this is this just a matter of, of this place this culture that I'm living in or is, is it is it universal what do other cultures say about this uh, what do other communities say about this 
And this is something that, that fascinates me up to this day. And it's, um, I think anthropology is a very important corrective to any kinds of mm. essentializations, fundamentalisms, any kind of ideology that tells you that you can only think about human culture or identity in only one certain way. I think that's like amazing, like how curious and like such intelligent uh, thinking so early in your childhood, because I'm thinking about it. My, when I was a kid, I didn't really question like what culture told me, what my parents told me about things, but you were already very early on questioning uh, how culture was telling you how gender and sexuality should be perceived. Have you always been like just hyper curious? I, I guess so. Yeah. Hyper curious and also hyper skeptic, you know, just not yeah. accepting what people tell me because it was so clear to me that, that what they are telling me cannot be the only right way. As you started to explore how different cultures wrote and thought about different genders and sexuality, were there any cultures that fascinated you or were helpful to you during that time? Well, obviously because from a very early age on already I started to identify with Islam and you know both as a culture and and a faith um, I was in particular interested um, in that what was going on there in the Islamic world in in Muslim context and also in, in South Asia because f due to well several reasons that I describe a little bit more in detail in my book South Asia became particularly interesting to me and uh, yeah but but still I mean even up to this day I think I even as a Muslim for example I am very interested also in what um, for example Siberian shamanist cultures say about gender or sexuality or what what um, traditional African religions say about this because I, I think in the end if we if we are honest enough and accept that there are different ways of looking at this, then then there can be no, you, you know, we have to be curious about all possibilities in, in that field. What drew you uh, to Islam? What was the draw there? Um, because there is a, sort of that narrative that's out there that certain religious groups, and I think of Islam or Christianity or Judaism, sometimes uh, can harm transgender people specifically. And so I see a lot of reason for people who uh, are transgender um, or have any sort of identity that's not accepted by their religion to just leave that religion. And so I'm kind of curious about what, what do you think drew you to Islam? I think the most important thing is that my, my first encounters with Islam were through people. Um, there has always been, even though my family is not Muslim, my parents are not Muslim, but there have been a lot of connections in my family history also with the Muslim world. Um, I grew up with uh, with with relatives who had connections to the Muslim world, and um, we. When I was a kid, my my parents they loved traveling, and and we we traveled to um, several Muslim countries already. So that was my first encounter with Islam. It was not just a theoretical encounter. And I could see very early in my life that this predominant media image of Islam that we also have in Europe very much is 
not the only side of Muslim societies and, and Muslim cultures and Islam as a faith. Um, I, I knew that very early in my life. And then what always impressed me about Islam was precisely this, this thing that, on the one hand, it is a very dogmatic religion and it's very uniform. So there are things that most Muslims all over the world agree on. You know, almost all Muslims pray in Arabic, for example, even though Arabic may not be their, their mother tongue. But there's also an incredible... Um, diversity in the Muslim world and there are so many different uh, different cultural expressions and that manifests in the theolo theological concept as well. So there is this idea of this overwhelming unity of God. I mean monotheism is, is very the most important principle in Islam and at the same time in particular in Muslim mysticism there is this idea that the plurality of our world, you know, all that beauty that, that manifests in that this whole diversity is a manifestation of that one unity, you know, like, like one light that just becomes this kale kaleidoscopic rainbow, um, basically. And, and, and this is an idea that I find, until this day, I find it very appealing and I found it very appealing as, as a child already this idea that, okay, there is this diversity and this diversity is beautiful and it is actually, mm. it, it is a manifestation of the divine unity in the end. Yeah. I love the way you just said that. So there, there are a couple moments in your book that just like stopped me. I just had to sit with what you wrote. And one of those passages um, was in one of your early chapters. And I want to read this and kind of just get your thoughts on it. Uh, this is... Um, this is the point where you talk about where you are realizing who you are. And you say, uh, for some time, I saw myself as gay and I wondered if I could find love fulfillment in the gay community. But after a while, it became clear to me that that was not what I wanted. I never wanted to be attractive to a man as a man. I experienced myself as a young woman, albeit with a body that felt increasingly at odds with my inner feelings and self-perception. I felt as if I was in a prison, a prison whose walls were getting narrower and narrower each day, threatening to crush me, period. And I, and I stopped there. It gave me chills reading that uh, because you describe like what it feels like uh, to be like in this prison, feeling trapped. And I wonder if you can kind of talk about that, um, being Muslim, realizing you're, you're a woman and, and kind of sitting with that yeah it, i mean puberty was the hardest time in my life being a teenager was the hardest time in my life it was horrible um going through all these internal changes and then also physical changes and not knowing what to do with it and i have to say this because people ask me this you know people ask all the time oh is this not particularly difficult when you are a muslim well it was not easy in the mosque, you know, I started going to the mosque as a teenager regularly and, and yeah, there were issues there. there. I was presented with a very gender segregated space there, most mosques still work that way today as well. Um, and of course in the, in the khutbas, which is the, you know, the Friday sermons, you always, you hear these kind of messages that do not... I, I never made made this experience that I was directly attacked, but but you just get this message that 
um, you should not, you know, you should conform to to the gender that was assigned to you at your birth, and and that comes with a specific sexuality and so on and so on. So you just know that, and that was not easy. I have to say though that the German mainstream society around me—I grew up in a very small rural town—that that did not make it easier either. You know, <laughs> it's it's the same thing basically. And and in the eighties and nineties, when I, I when I grew up, there was no knowledge whatsoever uh, on trans issues in society. I mean, all you could see was maybe you know we we also had these Jerry Springer like uh, mm. afternoon talk shows in Germany. And there you had trans people basically as freaks, mm. um, but but that was it. Um, and even talk about homosexuality was still very much uh, taboo. I mean, there was partly homosexuality. Homosexuality was still criminalized in mm. in Germany until the nineteen nineties, and there were things that you were just forbidden to do as uh, as a gay teenager that uh, straight teenagers would be allowed to do. You know. And so th this this whole atmosphere created a lot of pressure for me, not just being a Muslim and, and what the mosque offered me, but also what mainstream society offered me. And I tried many, many times to change myself, to become somebody else, to suppress my sexuality. Um, it always just led to a terrible backlash because, as, as we all know, when you suppress something, then it just comes back. With a vengeance, and that is exactly what happened to me. It led to very difficult, um, yeah, traumatic experiences, and um, it has affected my my mental health. Uh, and it, it does affect my mental health until today. I mean, I'm much much better today, many many decades on, but there are still issues that I'm struggling with that that go back to that time. And I was very suicidal. Mm. Um, I cried a lot, and and. I just, um, there, there was a long, long time, many, many years where I was incredibly unhappy happy and didn't know what to do with my life until in the end I, I knew, okay, I, I have to make some kind of decision about this. You display so much resilience and so much power in your story. Uh, for those listening in who maybe are feeling like you did then, uh, maybe it's because of religion, maybe because of culture, um, what would you say to them right now? Maybe they're feeling the way you described as being trapped and feeling crushed. It's a bit of a cliche sentence, but it does get better. It 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 really does if if you if you're willing to confront it. Um, I do not think I I you know I I wouldn't say that there is a path that really works for all. I mean, for a lot of people. Um, finally, you know, becoming who you are in your everyday life and coming out is the right path. But I also understand that there are just people who live in situations where that just is not possible. But even if that is not possible, your own your own psychology will work around that to some extent. You do you do grow older, and you 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 be, you. You develop some kind of maturity, mm -hmm. um, but the important thing is that you do not evade who you are and what you feel internally. Whether you can show that to the outside world or not, but but you have to, you have to keep thinking about it. You have to keep processing it, and and then it will get better. You mentioned some of the gender segregation that happens within the mosque, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because 
I know when I think about here in the U.S., one of the issues is, is like the bathroom debate and the struggles that trans people have, like not to use their own bathroom. And um, and then there's like, well, you can use the all gender bathroom as if that's the solution. And it's like, that's not empowering at all. That's not affirming at all. Um, so how did you, can you talk a little bit about the, the gender, uh, maybe the gender uh, differences uh, that are happening within the mosque? Well, let's put it this way. The average, first of all, there, there has been for a long time an issue with a lot of mosques when it comes to access for women. I mean, you, you still have a lot of mosques where it's even not expected that women will even enter the mosque. So you, you still have that in some mosques in Europe, in some mosques in, in North America. You have that in some regions of the Muslim world. It's very, you know, speaking about the diversity of the Muslim societies, that, that's very, you, you have Muslim countries where that is no issue at all, mm. but you have Muslim countries where that is an issue, and that reflects on the different diaspora communities here in the West as well. Um, so it's, So there is that. And then... Usually, in, in most mosques all over the world, female and male spaces are segregated, um, similar to what you would see in, in a lot of um, Orthodox Jewish spaces, for example, where you have that as well. Um, and, and then you sometimes see how, you know, male privilege kicks in because, you know, the, there may be a female space in a mosque, but it's definitely the smaller space and it's not as nice as the male space. So you have that a lot as well. Um, that's the, the traditional setup that developed historically. It's, it's not sure that there has been a lot of uh, feminist, Muslim feminist work on this that says that it was not like that in, in the Prophet's time. It's also interesting that, uh, for example, in, in Mecca, you know, the most holy, holy place of Islam, the pilgrimage place, it's just logistically not possible to completely segregate female and male spaces. So in, in the most holy mm. space of Islam, it's, it's not that much of an issue, actually. Mm. Um, and there have been a lot of, you know, inclusive, uh, progressive, or also LGBTQI inclusive Muslim initiatives in recent years and decades that also have mosque spaces now where this segregation does not exist anymore, where you also have female imams, for example. Um, the most famous one is Amina Wadud, um, a feminist Muslim scholar uh, originally from, from the U.S., um, so you have that now, but it's it's still very much in the minority, and that didn't exist at all when I grew when I grew up in the nineties. It, it it was not existent at all. As you were um, beginning to think about your gender and where you belonged within the mosque, uh, can you talk about maybe the experience of uh, first having access to uh, the women's area? When my first access to the women's area was in India, then when, you know, that, that part of my life that I write a lot about in, in my book, and uh, it, it wasn't even so much in mosque spaces, but the interesting mm. thing was that I, I noticed that very average and actually quite traditional Muslims in India and South Asia had no issue with introducing me, for example, to uh, to the women of their own households, which lived very much in segregation, 
you, you still have that in some very, you know, traditional areas of South Asia where the women basically, you know, they, they only leave the house with, with um, very rarely and heavily veiled. And usually men do not have access to those private private quarters. And I, it, it was so um, amazing for me. Not, not, not the thing that I was allowed to enter female space, but more the, the recognition that came uh, from the society that, that this was okay, you know, for, for a trans woman. That it, it was, or, or rather, a, a third gender hijra as, as they would identify and interpret me. Um, to be there present in those female spaces. That was very interesting for me. Um, nowadays with mosques, I mean, I do, I, I'm involved with a couple of the, you know, inclusive progressive uh, spaces that I've mentioned. I'm here in Germany, I'm active in an organization um, that calls itself Liberal, Liberal Muslim. Um, I've worked a couple of times in the UK with the inclusive mosque. Um, and uh, there, it, it's it's uh, it's so wonderful for me that segregation is just not an issue that I need to think about, because even today, when here in the Western diaspora I want to go to a mosque, I'm always when it's a traditional mosque, I'm always a bit anxious because I don't know what will happen to me when I go into the into the female space. Will people read me? Uh, as a trans woman, will they see that I'm a trans woman and then maybe throw me out because they are not comfortable with that? Mm. Because this is something that could happen, and it's 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 even today it's still an issue for me. Similar to the you know what you mentioned the bathroom issue as well. I mean I I'm I'm actually you know you you uh, I'm now. 41 and at this age you're you're just becoming much more relaxed about a lot of things but um i do remember that when i was 30 uh at that time still i when i when i was going out anywhere i was really trying to avoid having to go to a public bathroom and i know a lot of trans people who feel exactly the same because of all these social and political debates and we're just we're just afraid you know we're just afraid of offending people by going to to a bathroom basically it's a it's the all these discussions affect us uh you mentioned something um that i'd love for you to expand on you talk about the third gender communities uh when you were in india and i loved how you talk about that because so many i think about just here in the u.s we have this binary thinking about gender and you talk about going to india and joining i hope i pronounce it right the hijras um can you talk about joining the hijras and what that meant for you? Mm. So when I was, as I, as I mentioned, I was a struggling teenager. I didn't know what to do with all of the feelings that I had. And, and in particular, I also didn't know what to do with it with regards to my Muslim faith. So I, I, I and as I mentioned, I was already, I, I was a little <laughs> anthropologist, you know, I was interested in what other cultures would say. So, I did a lot of research on that, and I discovered this uh, this uh, identity, this South Asian identity of people who are well. There's a debate on whether we can say they are exactly the same as transgender people in the West or not. You know, there there is something to be discussed about how universal these categories are. 
Um, and I do talk a bit about that in my book as well. Um, but I, I realize it's something very similar, at least. It's, it's mostly people who are assigned male at birth, but who identify more in a feminine way, and they are categorized as, as a third gender traditionally in South Asia. Um, and uh, it was actually thanks to, uh, to a U.S.-American trans activist, Annie Ockborn, that uh, I, I had my first, uh, my first encounters with that community in India. And then later I came, I came back alone several times on my own and eventually also built up many connections in Pakistan, which is India's sister country. Um, and I'm actually right now much more connected to the Pakistani community, which is also much, much more heavily Muslim and also exists within a Muslim mainstream society than the Indian community, which also is Muslim, but exists in a mostly non-Muslim mainstream society. And uh, when I went there at for the first time, and that was around the time that I had, I decided to that I had decided to transition, and I made the decision to live as a woman, and uh, I was still struggling a lot with that in my German context. And I I came there, and I do not want to say that everything there in South Asia is happy and fine. There are a lot of issues. There is a lot of marginalization of trans people there, um, but. What I noticed was that there was a certain kind of very traditional visibility and there was a traditional space in society for these people that did not exist in any Western society. So, um, as I just mentioned, I was so surprised that very traditional conservative Muslims would just invite me to their homes and would see no issue with that, with me uh, meeting uh, the the women of their household, for example, and and this was a general message that I was given a lot in South Asia, both by Hindus and by Muslims. That okay, this is just a part of uh, of of nature. It's it's part of as Muslims would say, it's part of God's creation, and we need to we need to respect that creation. And then you also have in South Asia traditionally a very strong belief that trans people or, or rather third gender people have a, spe a special connection with God because we are different, because we suffer so much in, in life, because we cannot take part in the normal, you know, happy family life of other people. God grants us certain powers to bless others um, or to curse others. Which is, admittedly, it's not, I mean, when I, when I went to India for the first time, that was 20 years ago, and a lot has changed both in India and Pakistan uh, within these two decades. Um, and less and less people nowadays still believe in these kind of powers. But when I went there, this, this belief was still very strong and that impressed me. And I came, I, I remember that I came back to Germany and I had a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a hybris, you know. I, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm almost like a divine being. I can curse and bless uh, people. And um, um, it's only later that I also saw a lot of the problems and the marginalization that the trans community goes through in South Asia. Um, but at, at that point in my life, as a very, very young trans person, this gave me a lot of strength and it inspired me. Like hearing that and also reading your story, like it had to be so empowering to be in a place where you felt 
um, unaccepted, um, to all of a sudden move to an environment not only where you're accepted in society and by the religion, um, but also like being granted like you are also a blessed person. Like you can provide special blessings because of your identity. Yes, yes, precisely. I mean, it's a mixed bag. I, I, I recently talked about that to a German journalist who who was also saying, yeah, but this is this is not, you know, LGBTQI freedom as we envision it nowadays. I said, no, it's it's not. I mean, it's it's a bit. Um, people respect you, but they are also a bit afraid of you. That that is the traditional setup mm. that I encountered there, and uh, of course, it always it it still marks you as something other. Um, so it's not unproblematic. Um, but still, again, as I said, I mean, I, there, there was, I experienced no visibility of trans people in the society that I grew up in at that time. And then going there and, and seeing that, oh, wow, the trans people also can have a meaning, you know, a, a spiritual meaning, a cultural meaning that, that was just very, very impressive for me. What was it like, um, initially moving there and having to adapt because now you have a new schedule. Um, your life is, is changed dramatically. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like what life was like being a Hydra? Oh yeah. It's a very, it's a very hierarchical life there. It's a community that lives as a, I say, I always say a surrogate family. Mm. You could compare it a little bit to the, um, you know, the, the, what are they called? The, the ballroom houses, that people would maybe know from from the Netflix series mm. Pose or maybe from Paris is Burning, you know. So you have houses, communities of people who live together and there's somebody who's the mother. Um, and in India and in Pakistan, you would often call the person on top, you would, you would call them the guru, which is, I guess, a word that a lot of people will be familiar with. Guru means actually teacher, but it, it also has a much more... Uh, you know, it, it, it says something about your rank and the hierarchy. Um, and the, the others have to obey the guru. I mean, it's a very, um, it's, it's, it works similar to a traditional patriarchal family, only that all the people in that family happen to be trans people <laughs> or third gender people. But uh, other than that, the system is very similar. Um, and uh, there are traditional occupations that the third gender community usually has and they are connected to this this idea that that we can bless or curse people so um usually uh hijras would go out and would visit houses where little children were born or where a wedding takes place and then they would sing and dance there and then offer blessings but you know, if if they are not paid well for that, they may also say that we can curse you for that, and then usually they are paid. Um, that that is that is usually the main traditional occupation in areas where these traditions still work very well. Um, and as I said, that's changing a lot nowadays. Traditionally, a lot of hijras have also always been involved with sex work. Um, that that was very much frowned upon in the in the hijra house that I uh, that I lived in in my first years in in Delhi, 
But uh, for example, later in, in my time in Pakistan, I've spent a lot of time with, with sex workers there as well, trans sex workers. And um, sex work in that context not only covers, you know, actual sex work, but it's also entertainment work. So it may also just be um, that, that they perform for what we would maybe call a bachelor party or something like that. Um, so that is part of it as well. Um, yeah, but all of it is is very much regulated by this this hierarch hierarchical family system, which, as as all over the world and and in in all contexts, you know, it can work well and it can be abusive as well. There are good families and there are bad families. There are loving families and there are abusive families, and you will find the exact same in the third gender communities in South Asia. There are houses that are very loving, very caring, and their houses that are abusive. You write about the scriptures and teachings that were very empowering to you while you were there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the scriptures or, or passages that you found helpful to you? Oh, I, I, I should say that as, as with a lot of a lot of traditional Muslims actually all over the world do not so much constantly center around the scriptures. And this is a misconception that I think a lot of oh, okay. people have because, you know, a lot of non-Muslims think it's all about the Quran and it's all about the sayings of the Prophet. Yes, it is, but it's also, there's a much more organic spiritual life around that. And, uh, for example, for a lot of Muslims in South Asia, um, the the Sufi shrines, the shrines of the mystics that came long, long after mm -hmm. the Prophet are are very important centers and the teaching of these mystics which often um, exists in the form of poems for example or mm. songs um, so a, a lot of spirituality centers around that and there's a lot of there are a lot of transgender elements actually in the teachings of these mystics and and these mystics always had a very close relationship with the transgender community in particular in South Asia so this was something that really really impressed me um, the other thing that really impressed me is that uh, the and we, we maybe are going to speak a little bit more about the title of my book later, um, but it, the, this title among the eunuchs has partly to do with the fact that in South Asia, these communities are always identified with the eunuch communities that used to serve. Um, in the royal Muslim palaces. And there is some justification for that. And these eunuchs also used to serve in the most holy places of Islam, in, in Makkah and Medina. So they, they, had, they used to have a very sacred position there as well of guarding the tomb of the Prophet um, and guarding the most holy places of Islam. So that connection as well, that was very much emphasized in the community, I heard about that again and again, and, and the community is very proud of that. Um, other than that, of course, there are also passages in the Quran that uh, are very central to that. And, and my my personal most favorite verse in the Quran is, is Surah 4, verse 1, which explicitly says that all human beings were originally created from one single soul and uh, that that in the end you know it 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 
it tells us that these gender differences are in the end something very relative. Yes, they exist. And the Quran says a lot about that as well, you know, certain rules for men, certain rules for women, that, that does exist in the Quran and the Muslim traditions. But the fundamental idea is that we all come from one single soul. And this is a very fundamental idea for me. It is, I, I know that it's a very fundamental idea for a lot of LGBTQI Muslims and also for Muslim feminists. It's, it's something that this, again, it has to do also with this idea of the divine unity to which everything goes back in the end. And in the same way, our human identities also go back to a single unity in the end. The title of your book, you have word eunuchs there, and you actually reference um, a passage in the Bible, uh, Matthew nineteen twelve where Jesus refers to eunuchs and the blessings uh, they're given to eunuchs specifically. And you talk about, um, you kind of expand on that. You provide some good exposition on that passage. And I wonder maybe you talk a little bit about why you refer to eunuchs in the title of your book, and then maybe a little bit about um, the blessing that Jesus gives them. Yeah, the interesting thing about this this gospel passage is that it speaks about uh, three kinds of eunuchs. It speaks about eunuchs that were born eunuchs, it speaks about eunuchs that were made eunuchs by mankind, and it speaks about eunuchs that are eunuchs for the sake of the heavens. Um, the Catholic Church, for example, bases its idea of celibacy on, on this last part, you know, being eunuch for, for the sake of the heavens. Um, we all have a good idea on what it means to be a eunuch who was made a eunuch by mankind. We, we know about the history of false castration of slaves um, that, that happened in a lot of societies, both European societies and Muslim societies for a long, long time. We know about that. But who are eunuchs who were born eunuchs? This is something that in particular modern, uh, modern theologians often struggle with a little bit. But we, we do know that at the time of Jesus, there was this idea that there were people who were born in a specific gendered or sexual way and, and who just did not belong to that heteronormative, heterosexual world, and they were called eunuchs as well. We find that in Jewish scriptures as well. The Talmud has several categories, for example, for these kind of eunuchs. So that was an idea that existed in, in antiquity. Eunuchs were not just castrated men that was one kind of eunuch but other people who also somehow fell out of the gender binary were also seen as eunuchs and this idea persisted in south asia for much longer than in other parts of the world and um it it um also because there were um there were indigenous Indian ideas that were comparable to that. And when Islam came to South Asia, it could adapt to those ideas very easily. So Islam Islam came from that same, you know, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern world that Jesus lived in. Uh, it brought these ideas uh, to, to South Asia, and there you had similar ideas. So um, the, the combination of this created the South Asian idea of the eunuch. And as I said, until today, the, the eunuchs that served in the royal palaces of, of uh, well, the Muslim nobility in, in India um, are very much identified with the third gender community. And we do know that, in, indeed, 
I mean, there were definitely castrated slaves as well who were forced to work as eunuchs in the palaces, but we also know of several historical cases um, where people were, where people are specifically described as born eunuchs. So we do know that definitely the third gender community in South Asia was con it was connected to these eunuch societies at the court. So this is not just you know it's it's not just an imagined history. It, there there really is a connection there, and um, yeah, and and the words of Jesus they tell us that there was always a very old connection also between this idea of falling out of the gender binary, but then also maybe being connected to God as well. And we've, we see that in a lot of contexts. We, we see that in pagan contexts in, in the world that surrounded Jesus as well. There were a lot of, what a, a lot of cults of sacred eunuchs, which basically were very much like the third gender community is in India still today, and that we could identify as transgender, um, we we have we have this phenomenon all over the world of of for example, there are a lot of indigenous people which believe that transgender people are specifically um, they they have a quality that make makes them the perfect shamans for example. Mm -hmm. So we have in a lot of cultures we have this idea that people who fall out of the gender binary they do have this specific connection to the supernatural uh, well Layla, i want to thank you so much for for writing a, a beautiful book about your journey and for coming on the podcast to share a little bit about that um, you've done such a beautiful job explaining your own struggles how you overcome them um, and how the muslim faith has helped you so thank you so much Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Leila Yagiela about our fantastic new book entitled Among the Eunuchs, A Muslim Transgender Journey, published by Hearst. Her fantastic book shares the story of Leila's transgender journey as a Muslim woman and finding belonging among the third gender communities in Southeast Asia. You can get your copy at all your favorite online booksellers. Next week, we're chatting with Dr. Bart Ehrman about the ways ancient cultures thought about heaven and hell and how these ideas impacted Christian thinking. You can get all the links, show notes, and more information about Layla's new book at my blog at mikedelgado.org. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please share it with a friend and or rate it on your favorite podcast player. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.